Cicadas again. Just, the cicada just started. You may be hearing it in the background. It's Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary. I'm Matt. Oh, I'm Hillary. And this is our uh, Kim Stanley Robinson read-along podcast, and we're entering phase two. Phase two, The Martians. The Martians. Um, so we're excited to be reading this uh, collection of sort of short stories. Um, I've, I've been referring to it as the Apocrypha of the Mars oh, Trilogy. That's nice. Um, because Stan has said, basically, you know, these are stories that didn't happen in the Mars Trilogy, kind of could have happened, didn't necessarily, they should be read separately, but together, right? Like, so it's the same characters, the same kind of universe, but also not very much like these are not things that you know are canon or something right like that. right yeah i was gonna say it seems like i mean since our last episode was the interview with stan mm. uh, which was amazing yes um thank you stan yeah thank you thank you stan <laughs> uh and um i thought one of the things that was really fun about that interview was i feel like he spent a lot of time just talking about the books yeah. like in a literary right. way. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was thinking, Matt, mm. I was reflecting what were you on thinking, the podcast, yeah. on, on, on our podcast and how we thought about it when we started out and where it's, how it's developed. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking it's kind of funny that like, it feels very expected to me that we would have spent a lot of time, I think, talking about politics because I feel like that's what we, you and I, just talk about yeah, normally, right? Um, in non-podcast yeah, temporalities. Right. <laughs> um, but I think that when we started, I don't think we imagined that we were going to be talking about these books sort of as books mm. as much as we've ended up talking about mm. them. I mean, like we've done a lot more sort of variants on like close reading and as Stan was pointed out to us, like thinking about the characters yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, I just feel like it's ended up being a different kind of reading experience than I think we yeah. imagined it was going to be. I think, I think one thing, so I think that, uh, that reminds me of like when I sat in on your science fiction class, um, that you're, Fem it was not a feminist utopian science fiction. No, it was a feminist utopian science fiction. I think that was just my utopian It was just science utopian fiction science fiction. It was the first one I taught. And, you know, I think the way that you especially approach science fiction is through, you know, what we've talked about with uh, Darko Subin's concept of the novum and trying to think about um, the way that you can imagine society, politics, economics differently mm. and these vast structures and so that individual characters become less important in your reading. And I think what, I don't know mm. if, it's, if it's my fault or my uh, uh, approach to, to like the close, like I, I, I think in college I really got, a, you know, fell into close reading for one reason or another. So like I'm, uh, I wonder if that has to do with just our chemistry of like balancing out between reading them as science fictions and utopians and utopias and thinking about, you know, large uh, structures 
Um, but then also like really drilling down to some of the language and like um, uh, how the characters are constructed and how they interact with each other on an individual basis. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking, uh, I just read this really, uh, really bad science fiction novel that I think I just won't say what yeah, it's called. Yeah, probably don't say it. Uh, we don't ha want hate mail. Uh, but God, it was just horrible. Uh -huh. It was so horrible. Like for a late 80s novel that somebody recommended to me, whatever. I, and it's very long, mm -hmm. and I felt compelled to read the whole thing, but really in a real hate read yeah. mode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, it was so bad. But one of the things that made me really annoyed by it, this is going to connect back to what you're just saying. One of the things that made me really annoyed by it is that everything that I had read about it and all the sort of like reviews, the copy on it and all the reviews or whatever talked about it as having all of these literary, literary qualities, mm. like this really literary work, mm -hmm. which is like a word I feel like people use to mean intelligent or something right. like that. In, or, or, you know, like it's, it's not just genre, it's literary yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Um, which is like kind of whatever. I have objections to that anyway. But in the case of this book, like what, what made it literary? Literary was like a lot of just like really, um, just like undercooked references to works of literature. Like really obvious references. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, so like, just like, I mean, include, I'm sure the person who wrote the book is like ex smart. Yeah. Right. But like, who cares? Yeah. Like what it, on the page, what that did was just like, you know, make this like sea of like, you know, really boring references to things that the book itself was not having a thought about. Right. right? It was like a, it was like right. decoration, right. you know, <clears throat> and I was kind of comparing that in my head to something that we talked about. And then we talked to Stan a bit about like the relationship of the Mars books to 19th century realism. Yeah. And, you know, I think that those books, and I feel like this came out in the way that we talked about them, the Mars trilogy, they have, you know, they're not making reference to 19th century realism. They are a way of, like, engaging with, like, certain of the sort of formal and conceptual properties and the work done by yeah. the 19th century realist right. novel. Yeah. And one of the things that's amazing about, I think, the Mars books is that they both have these characters who are worth paying attention to as characters um, and yet they also, like, can give you this kind of sense of scope, like, through time compression, through the way in which they give you an entire world um, that does more than just, like, give you a... That, so that they don't have to get... The stories don't get reinfolded into just, well, this is just, in the end, a story about these individual people, right? right? It yeah. always is a sort of story about a world and all the structures in a world. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, for instance, the guy who it leads a whole political philosophy that we <laughs> right. forgot, exactly. that even Stan forgot yeah. existed, right? He exists there, but off to the side, we never hear from him. I was, you know, what I've started doing, uh, I was re I've been reading uh, books that we have around the house in order to get rid of them before we move. <laughs> um, and one of them, uh, my partner had a copy of To the Lighthouse by Virginia mm. Woolf. So I'm like, oh, I want to read this because I've I don't think I've ever read Virginia Woolf or if I did, it was like 20 years ago. And that first chapter of the Mars Trilogy, as you pointed out, is called The Voyage Out, which is a, the title of a Virginia Woolf novel. And so I'm like, okay, this is a really... I want to know what what Virginia Woolf has to do with Stan Robinson, right? And so I'm reading To the Lighthouse, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, I don't get it. Like, what what is the resonance? But finally, like, getting sort of, I don't, I don't know if this is how Voyage Out is, but it's 
to the lighthouse is on, like not quite internal monologues, right. but internal knowledge that the the characters themselves mm. don't quite know, but gets expressed in these like very mundane spoken lines that they tell to other people. But there's all this like deep psychological undercurrent going on in these very minute domestic settings and, and actions, right? And at a certain point reading it, I finally like did sort of realize that this does happen a lot in the Mars trilogy, that not to the extent that Virginia Woolf does it, but that um, we get we do have like a really rich interior life of these characters and the characters um, themselves are often standing in for they could be almost anybody in a certain way. Mm -hmm. They're not they're they're not heroic individuals necessarily. They're people who find them they're you know, individual subjects who find themselves in a particular space condition arrangement with other characters and then react in a certain way right based on past experiences based on their desires whatever <laughs> um so like for instance sax you know we have a really kind of a, a rich interior life that he has that's also like withholden from himself like mm -hmm. he doesn't quite know it and then he acts in these really strange ways, oftentimes, like unilaterally deciding to blow up a satellite, <laughs> right? Or unilaterally deciding to plant an entire field of like fire thorn or whatever it was, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, right. In order to eradicate yeah. this thing. And um, so that kind of like psychological aspect of the kind of realist tradition inflected by the modernist tradition that then winds up in Stan Robinson as he said in the interview talking about, you know, in po he basically, he said, postmodernism, you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. This is his <laughs> version of what postmodernism is, which is uh, f good, fine. Um, uh, but, um, uh, but that means that you're not, as he was saying too, you're not beholden to the quote unquote rules mm -hmm. of science fiction. If I want 19th century realism here, I'm gonna do it, right? Um, so I think, yeah, the, the conversation around the, li the literary, the quote literary, uh, aspects of the of the book was really uh, great and surprising and actually feeds into the Martians a lot from what I've read what we've read so far the first four or five chapters because it's f increasingly fleshing out these interior lives but in this realist 19th century realist novel space um, putting them into deeper conversation with each other um, yeah it's it's interesting yeah and I was gonna say but then also doing some things that are like really weird things to do both in terms of thinking about uh you know what you expect science fiction to do what you expect like a sequel to do um what you expect a novel set in the same quote-unquote universe which i think is a conception that i think stan yeah. would refuse and this book yeah. makes it pretty clear well like, and it wasn't a concept why. in 1997 when he published this right no, like but, that's a yeah no but you do but you do think about like whether i mean it is possible before people talk in that way about the idea of a you know a transmedial right. universe to think about about how sequels are set in the same sort of like large scale world mm -hmm. right or set of worlds or something like that but i think one of the things that seems interesting to me about the martians is that it uh it both like i mean so far 
I mean, I guess maybe it's worth saying, like, I've never read this before. Me neither. So this is actually different for us than doing the Mars books, which right. we had read, right. despite our, like, you know, aging, faulty memory <laughs> brains. <laughs> yeah. our, the, our inability the, to remember what happened the yesterday. The rapid decline, what is it called? <laughs> the sudden... The sudden decline. The sudden decline. <laughs> Case in point. Hopefully that's not going to happen while we're recording. Case in point. Just right afterwards. Yeah. Turn off the mics, sudden mm -hmm. decline. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, but you know, but despite that, like, we were sort of, like, working through territory that, like, we had already known and thought about. Um, and here we're reading something new. Right. Um, so I think that's interesting. I mean, that seems worth noting. So we can be stupider than yeah. we normally <laughs> Even stupider than we normally are. Um, but the other thing that I think is, is really interesting here is, so you can, you can see, all right, one version of things is you write this trilogy, um... It's, you know, uh, popular, highly praised, awarded, all of these things. You've obviously, like, written something that is, like, great and distinguished. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, okay, you're not going to write a fourth volume of it, even though people probably want you to and you could sell it, yeah. right? Because, um, of course. I mean, because, of course, you want another volume of the Mars trilogy, right? right. right? Um, but, you know, you can see following it up with, like, short stories that, like, flesh out things. Right. Um, but I feel like a book that is not only short stories, but also like little hard to place essayistic yes. bits. Yeah. Yeah. Um, little tales that are like the prologue, some of the prologue sections, yes. right? Poems. Yeah. Um, complete, like just like generic hopping all around in yeah. terms of like the way that the stories are organized perspective shifts yeah. that are not aligned in the way that, you know, like, so you loved how, like, in the Mars trilogy, you were, for whatever, however incredibly complicated the historical and political thinking and, and also the scientific thinking was, like, you're always anchored through a character, mm -hmm. you know, so you have that sort of, like, space to keep yourself in. But here, like, you know, narrative is, the, narr the narrators are all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, and, in fact, there are these moments, even in the very beginning, like, of kind of strange narrative shift. Mm -hmm. And then we get just, like, entire revisions to things, including <laughs> the whole collection begins with a story that's about how the whole expedition didn't happen. Was canceled. <laughs> Everything that you've read, so had, it was all just a dream. Like the whole trilogy, actually, that didn't happen. This is the new reality. <laughs> I just think that's awesome. I read that first story, which is the uh, Michelle in Antarctica yeah. story. I was on the on the L, mm -hmm. um, which I don't usually read on the train because, like, my train ride is not that long. Yeah. And it's hard to concentrate. And it's crowded. Uh, but for some reason, I was reading it on the train. And I just, like, laughing out loud at the end of it. So, I know, yeah. So it came awesome. as such a surprise to me. <laughs> well, so let's get into uh, Michelle in Antarctica. Where today, we're going to try to get through um, the first four of these stories. So Michelle in Antarctica, Exploring Fossil Canyon, the Archaea plot, and the way the land spoke to us. We'll see how much uh, time we actually have. But the Michelle in Antarctica, for whatever reason, so I'm moving, I'm packing. It's like everything's going on. I'm also reading to the lighthouse. So it took me forever. <laughs> it's, it's a weird decision to have made. Um, it took me forever to read Michelle in Antarctica. So I, I shouldn't, I didn't read it in like, you know, one sitting, like I should have. It took me like a week. Uh, partly because I, 
I just, I think like, as you were saying beforehand, Michelle comes off as just so awful oh, in, it, God. in this chapter. Oh my God. But it was worth it to finally to get the end and, and find out that that last line is so funny. <laughs> and they canceled it. And they canceled the project. Um, but it's in part, it's also really funny because we're, we're, the chapter treats us to <clears throat> Michelle's, uh, Michelle's perspective <laughs> on these people and his approach to his professionalism, let's yes, say. Yes. And it is so bad, so wrong, you know? Oh, like this God. guy is, you know, it's funny too because Stan in the interview um, was joking, was saying like uh, some people have said to him, you know, M- Michelle acts so unprofessionally. <laughs> and, and Stan was like, he's the, of course he does. He's the craziest one of all of them. And I was like, I never really thought of him as the craziest one of all of them. I don't know who I thought of as the craziest one. But reading this is like, oh yeah, this guy is a total lunatic. Like he should not be anywhere near other people, let alone <laughs> patients. I was thinking about how much, um, yeah, I mean, this chapter I had said to you before we started recording, and I do kind of feel this way. Uh, I think that the the novels do the Michelle, give Michelle a, the credit of being intelligent and able to have ideas about people, uh-huh. you know. I mean, and even his sort of, like, alchemical thing, like, you know, at, at least that, like, v- as an interpretive mode, like vibes with some of the things that the novels are doing anyway. So it has mm. a kind of reflexive quality right, to it yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, this chapter, just like imagining reading it without knowing who Michelle was, you'd just be like, I mean, and, I mean, he's gross. He's yeah. just like gross. I mean, it's just like a chapter of like Michelle's male gaze and then writing it down in code in his like secret notebooks. Oh, she had really nice breasts and her posture was great. <laughs> it, when you get, Fantastic. when you get to, yeah, his, uh, his sketches, his, his personal oh notes, my God. it is just insane They're because amazing. every woman is beautiful and then every man is a power. A power. Which I think tells you a lot about how Michelle sees himself. <laughs> that he is, you know, that he, if these men are powers, then he is definitely not a power in his own eyes. And that um, mm-hmm. all the women are beautiful, therefore he must think himself as very ugly or something like that. Like, it's just the opposite of everything. And... Um, I mean, it's like a high, it's like a high school, like, you know, you're the new, well, I mean, and I guess also, like, yeah. you're the new kid at the high school, yeah, right? Right. You're a new boy, well, 14 year old boy. Yeah. 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 No, it's tough. He's completely who, he's completely who probably all high school boys are just falling in love with the next woman that they see. Like they, like, like all, all straight high school, boys. all straight high school boys, probably, you know, who knows what, I mean, I don't know. Um, but, uh. But and then, yeah, and feeling completely um, out of place because also these people are all going to Mars and he's not. Right, right, right. right. So like he's already an outsider. Um, but like just for instance, Frank Chalmers and he, how wrong he is about yeah, this. He's amazingly wrong. Frank Chalmers, a power, I think. It's hard not to see him as an adjunct to John Boone, the sidekick or enabler. On his own out here, not so impressive, diminished, less a historical character. He's elusive, big, bulky, dark complexioned. He keeps a low pro- profile. He's quite friendly, but it doesn't seem to, but it doesn't seem to one that it is real friendliness. A political animal like Phyllis, only they don't like each other. It's Maya he likes, and Maya likes makes sure he feels part of her world. But what he really wants is not clear. There's a person in there that one does not know at all. 
I mean, he's a little bit yeah. right there, but like also just not so impressive. It's like, yes, you know, yeah. Well, and the um, Anne, the Anne one, yeah, Anne is a real beauty, though austere. I mean, that's the key. He has to think about their beauty first. Right. Tall, angular, bony, strong, both body and face. She draws the eye. She certainly does take Mars <laughs> seriously. People see that in her and like her for it. Or not, as the case may be. I mean, in some ways, this is actually a true diagnosis. Yeah, it's true. true. Her shadow is very distinct. Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, the uh, um, uh, on page 13, Arkady Bogdanov is a power, a very steady, reliable yeah. fellow. Ernest almost the point of dullness. One sees everything he's thinking. He doesn't bother to conceal it. What I am is enough to get me to Mars, he says in his manner. Don't you agree? And I do. An engineer, quick and ingenious, not interested in larger issues. I mean, I, I suppose we could charitably read it as like everybody's behaving differently in yeah, Antarctica, right. but still. Yeah. Well, so he does, you know, he, he is one of the, you know, he even in the Mars trilogy and, and, and again here, he calls out to his superiors or whatever, skeptical of the whole project because of the, this notion of the double bind that you have to be crazy enough to want to go to Mars, but sane enough to be uh, a stable person. You have to be an expert in your field, have developed multiple subspecialties and, and secondary and tertiary expertises, but at the same time, and so you need to be uh, studious and uh, interior, but then you also have to be a, a social animal and a able to get along with people and cooperate. You have to be a leader, but a follower. You have to be all these like things. And, um, and uh, he calls out the, this set of double binds, which is which was what he ends up, you know, giving his final report that's like, this is just not gonna work. Uh, and they cancel the project. Um, and I forgot what I was going to say because the motorcycle. I'll blame the motorcycle. I'll blame the motorcycle. It was loud. Um, well, I, I think that the... Yeah, I mean, so the things that are weird about reading this are... So in some ways it is... I mean, in some ways... the. As a story, it is a story about the person who is outside things and also the person who is constantly seeing power of certain kinds in others. Right. Right. Um, but in fact, in this scene, he is the one with power. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. you know, he does. And, and he initially recommends that the project be canceled and then like um, freaks out and decides he should recommend that it shouldn't be canceled. Right. And then it ends up getting canceled. Right. Right. So in this scene, he also does have a certain kind of power too. Um, you know, yeah. So I was thinking in some ways this is a story about him. And if you, if you read this um, as like a standalone thing about the th the version of things that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. You know, Michelle just like stays an outsider mm -hmm. to all of these people, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I was thinking about the sort of progression of the stories in this first part. You know, they are kind of, I mean, there is a sort of like repeated, like the person who is outside things, right? Looking at things. Mm. And here we get this almost like joking version at moments, I think a kind of joking version of like, what does the outsider's perspective do? How can it, in some ways an outsider perceives things rightly, like mm -hmm. he, he gets certain things that are going on. And in other ways, he's just completely wrong about people because he is overly involved with them while at the same time thinking that he remains like aloof. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, super involved with them, but also... Uh yeah, thinking that he is being rejected at all times. Yeah, yeah, yes. Or 
or being, um, you know, seduced at all times. That's the other thing is like, oh, she smiled at him, but maybe she didn't, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, oh, uh, her, her leg touched my leg. Oh, but maybe it was an accident. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. Um, this kind of deeply paranoiac like um, reaction. What I was going to say actually was um, before there's this um, other podcast that came out like last year called The Habitat um, about NASA is doing these experiments with uh, putting like a dozen people in these various like simulated Mars mm. experiences where they have to live there. They live there for a year and interact. And um, part of their part of the project involves um, or one of their concerns is making sure that people don't form like sexual relationships or something like that or like any kind of like deep personal one-on-one -on -one relationships because it would ruin like the overall group chemistry which i think is like stupid like yep. one of the stupidest yep. like <laughs> how are you going to do like that's just dumb and then this is the, it's the same thing is happening <laughs> in the idea of like yeah. sending a colony to mars is like oh we have to make sure that they don't like have like relationships right and it's so this is really just a side uh, rant or something like that. That's just like, these are scientists, right? They know how like human beings interact with each other. Right. <laughs> like right. they understand, don't they understand like sex and sexuality are like kind of part of like the human experience? Well, and not just, I mean, not just that, but the, the, the idea here, I mean this, you know, so from the, pers from what we see in this story, about what the what Antarctica is supposed to have, what kind of proving ground or right. whatever is supposed to be. Um, so on the one hand, it's supposed to be like this, like Mars-like space, right? In which you know, because the environment is extremely harsh, it produces certain kinds of stresses right. in people, right? Although it seems like there's also supposed to be this practical element in which they practice putting together like the various kinds of buildings and things right. like that that they would be putting together. Um, uh, but then it's also supposed to, it also weirdly, I, I think that this is one of the points that the story is kind of making, that sort of conception that you can, and this is tied to what you were saying, that you can just send people into like a non-space, mm -hmm. right? Um, or you can like, let's make an artificial Mars, and an artificial Mars will be able to test out how these people would act on real Mars, yeah. right? But of course, Antarctica isn't artificial Mars. It's Antarctica, yeah. as the story makes clear by, you know, talking about, you know, first of all, like giving us like beautiful, specific accounts of the landscape. Oh, right. Talking about Shackleton and oh, Scott. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? The Shackleton stuff um, is amazing. The extremely like, I mean, that really lovely moment when he's out with Tatiana and they find the bones of the seal. Right. And that it's very beautiful image of them. They're looking down into a frozen lake mm -hmm. and he sees it as looking down into the universe yeah like stars, oh yeah right? yeah yeah i mean so and then that kind that sort of idea about what nature is right that like you can have you know like one piece of nature can just stand in for another piece right like one natural setting could stand in for another natural setting it's harsh or whatever mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. it's uh unamenable to human life mm -hmm. um kind of also like wants to wipe away the specific characteristics of a place right. away. Um, just as like the idea that like you could put people into a setting and be like, you're not going to form relationships with other people, whether they're like, you know, sexual yeah. or affective or whatever. Or antagonistic. Or exactly. Those are what human beings 
do yeah. the, the, right? the kind of it's it's interesting to think about it as a you know, it, in relation to just the concept of experimentation at all. Yeah, yes. That yeah. like you can you can control for certain factors is obviously a myth because every experiment, you know, the scientific method is like, I have a thesis, I do an experiment, you replicate the experiment and you're going to get the same results. No one ever gets the same results ever, period. There's always a, um, what is it called? Standard deviation or something like that, right? right There's an acceptable right. margin of error. Um, uh, and so like that, yeah, the idea that you could ever control for, for factors is like totally crazy. And then that, yeah, you, as you're saying that you could replicate what's going on on what would happen on Mars on in Antarctica, right? And, or the, and then that there are people, cause that's, or that of, you can even, sorry to interrupt, no, no, or that as Stan said in the interview too, that you can actually learn from history, that analogy actually works. Um, which I found really interesting when he said that. Uh, and it, I think it makes a certain amount of sense. I also think like we don't have anything else besides analogy to like learn from in a certain way. Um, like we, there's a cat. <laughs> like we, we have to like contextualize, you know, everything is compared to everything else to like create a network of meaning or something, right? Right, but there are other ways to learn from things than by analogizing them. Okay. Right. Sure. I think. Like what? But but I think, well, I mean, I think part of, I mean, part of the, part of the idea here is the sort of fantasy that you can ask people, which Michelle does get at in his analysis, that you can ask people to, that, to both want to go to Mars and have the set of abilities that would make them successful mm -hmm. in that trip. Mm -hmm. Um and yet also be people who have no attachments to Earth, right? Because that's yes, part of what they right. want here, yes, right? They want people thing. who are detachable. Um, you know, and that's one of the things, like, in the very beginnings of Red Mars, when people think a lot about, like, well, we've slipped the bound, the umbilical cord is cut, yeah. is cut, we're free, we're free, right? But, of course, like, that's not where... That's not where history is, mm -hmm. right? You know, history isn't just like you were this place, you were in this place, and then you went to this new place, and then you got out of that history, right? right. It comes with you, and that's something that Michelle here. Um, I thought that the he has some interesting. I, I mean, reflections on there's on a twenty six. He yeah. thinks about the. Um, uh, the postmodern yes. structure of feeling, and then on. On uh, 28 to 29, um, he's again thinking, and I, I don't totally like, I don't uh, completely buy this thought he's having here, but he's looking at the photo. He's in Shackleton's hut and he's looking at the photo of the men. The men were worn looking battered, dirty, frost nipped, tired, also calm, even serene. They could sit and do nothing but watch fire burn in a stove, entirely satisfied. They looked cold but warm. The very structure of the brain had been different then, yeah. more inured to hardship in the long, slow hours of sheer animal existence. Mm -hmm. I mean, I believe that the story of, like, the Shackleton, uh, uh, I mean, I don't think it really bears out this account of them just, like, inured to their animal existence, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then certainly the structure of feeling had changed. That was culturally determined, and thus the brain must necessarily have changed too. A century later on, their brains depended on great dollops of mediated stimulation. Yeah. And this is actually a kind of thought that is not so much there in the Mars yes, trilogy, right? Yeah. I mean, this is that thing that you've talked about a bunch, right? right? Like here is, here we're thinking about like, um, you know, the rapidity of networked information, right? Yeah. That kind of thing. A century later, their brains depended on great dollops of mediated stimulation, quick cut inputs, which had not even existed for earlier generations. So that reliance on inner resources was harder. Patience was harder. 
They were different animals than the people in this photo. The epigenetic interplay of DNA and culture was now changing people so fast that even a century was enough to make a measurable difference. Accelerated evolution, or one of the punctuations in the long tail of punctuated mm -hmm. evolution, and Mars would be more the same. There was no telling what they would become. Yeah. I mean, which, you know, like, as, I mean, based on the Mars trilogy, that turns out to be true, but it's an interesting, you know, I mean, I might feel a little skeptical of his sense of, like, you know, the radical difference between them and the people in the Shackleton photo. Right. But at the same time, like, here we're getting this kind of thought about, like, it's not just, you know, history isn't just stories yeah. that you know or, or fail to know. Right. Um, it also, like, gets, like, written in and through people's bodies yeah, right yeah. you know their life possibilities both in terms of like their ability to make choices but also your life possibilities in terms of like what you are like as a like embodied creature right? yeah 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 on on 27 26 before the postmodern structure of feeling that he describes you know um uh it's not is it shackleton's or one of the other one of the two um expeditions and how they lived right at lake vanda um, here at Cape Evans, they had had only the necessities, all the necessities, except for some vitamins and the company of the opposite sex. Michelle, Michelle. notices yeah. that, obviously. How pale and odd they had become from those lacks, along with the lack of sunlight itself. Monastic malnourished troglodytes suffering from seasonal affective <laughs> disorder without knowing what a ferocious psychological problem it was, so that perhaps it hadn't been. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, writing newspapers, <laughs> acting out sketches, pumping music rolls through player pianos, reading books, doing research, and producing some food by fishing and killing seals. Yes, they had had their pleasures. Deprived as they were, these men had still lived on Mother Earth in contact with the cold fringe of her bounty. On Mars, there would be none mm. of those Inuit raptures to pass the time and ameliorate their confinement. Um, Do you think he's thinking that uh, uh, playing... Uh, Playing, pumping music rolls through the player pianos is an Inuit rapture. <laughs> Who knows what this guy, his, his knowledge of history is very uh, mixed up. His knowledge of lots of things are really mixed up. Um, anyway, th this was really fascinating. We should move to the next one. Um, but I, I am really interested in that kind of way that the brain changes according to your historical circumstances and like the, the influence of the exterior on the interior. Yeah, um, and just that kind of, you know, that you carry things with you. That to say that you carry like, you know, history and historical transformation with you across generations is not to speak metaphorically. Yeah, right. right? I was also talking with a friend the other day about just teaching older film to students and trying to convince them that audiences at the time would have understood the films that we're watching in a way that you cannot possibly understand them. And that just things that just basic narrative events that everyone in the theater in 1948 would have understood about Fort Apache, like you can't decipher them. It's, it's, you need to actually get into a completely different mindset it's a whole different structure of feeling it's a different set of mechanic like narrative mechanisms right and like um different set of you know quick cut inputs basically that 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 are you know whatever that well, aren't, aren't biological but they almost feel biological because they're so naturalized right that's yeah i mean i think that's a really yeah that's like a perfect way to think about the structure of feeling i was also thinking it's funny though that sometimes like when i teach 19th century stuff I notice sometimes students do kind of 
a sort of opposite thing to that, which is that they just assume that everything, you know, I don't know what we're reading. We're reading like Dickens or, you know, something like that. And they'll just assume that like, if they just had been so lucky or unlucky to have been born at the right time to have read this book when it was first published, right. that they would just get everything. They would understand everything. In it, and yeah. they'll be like, well, no, yeah. you know, like it's still like a, of, you know, a work of art that plays with form yeah. and, um, you know, in which certain things are made for people to under, you know, there are things yeah, in, when you're reading sure. a Dickens novel that, that, you know, we don't understand because we don't participate in that structure of feeling. Yes. And we can only come to recognize it by doing a certain kind of historical work. Right. But then there, there are other things that like people reading it, depending on who people were still various and strange right. and didn't get everything that, right. you know, like, right. and still had to sit down and be like, wait, why did that happen? Yeah. Why is that guy named that thing? Yeah, you for know? sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, that's not to disagree with you. It's just to no. say, I think that that's a funny, like, there's also sometimes the leap to just assume like, yeah, but if I'd just been around then I would totally have gotten you, all You find this, that in papers know? all the time. Like students are like, you know, we don't recognize it today, but if we had back then, then we would have known or whatever. It's like, not really. I mean, not necessarily. Like you can't, also you can't fall back on that as an excuse for not getting the book. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, well, in the, in the 19th century, everybody thought that women should just stay at home and they didn't believe that women were able to do anything and that's how everybody felt. All everybody the felt that way all exactly. the time. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. Okay, Exploring Fossil Canyon. This is I a really, good story. I really this enjoyed awesome this story. story. Um, Roger Claiborne is what? Anne's uh, grandson, probably? Uh, I, was Peter I was wondering is, that. Peter's, Peter's her son. Yep. I just assume Roger is her grandson. Do we... I mean, I... I'm always bad at figuring out how much time has, like, generational so, time has elapsed. Um, it could be two generations on. On 41, uh, Eileen, our, our character, Eileen somebody, Monday. Eileen Monday. Good name. <laughs> uh, says, um, he was one of the tall Martians, well over two meters. Lamarckism was back in vogue as it appeared that the more generations of ancestors you had on Mars, the taller you grew. It was true for Eileen herself, who was fourth generation or Yonsei. Oh. Um, so he's at least third, maybe fourth generation Yonsei, right? Because he's, um, he's got the weird tallness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, long feet that were clumsy once outside of their boots. Um, and it's really, this is really fun because um, you know just by his name who he is or who he's related to and how close to Mars he must just, you know, preternaturally be. But, <laughs> and, how, and therefore how good of a guide he must mm -hmm. be. But Eileen spends the first half of this being like, this guy sucks. He's, he's a jerk. <laughs> he doesn't talk to us. He's so sarcastic and like kind of assholey, you know? And this is, this is another, I mean, this story, unlike the, the previous one, it's hard to imagine as a standalone story because its pleasure is so much about you knowing That's true. other things. But this totally could be a standalone Doesn't story. Doesn't have any characters from the original trilogy at all. And, and it, yeah, I mean, but then if you've just been reading the Mars books, reading all of a sudden that there's like a sort of like uh, hiking... It's There's like a hiking tourism, tourism yeah. industry on Mars yeah. is is very disorienting. It's it's a high it's and I would love to know like what year this is supposed to be right like in the in the grand scheme of things but. Um, there's this hiking, there's this kind of adventure tourism thing guaranteed. No human has ever set foot on these in this area before. Right. Um, and it's populated entirely by people 
who are um, or it's patronized by people who fancy themselves like hobbyist areologists or mm-hmm. something like they read basically, you know, National Geographic, um, not like the actual <laughs> like they don't read the actual like academic journals, but they read like the popularized versions of it. And they they all kind of like, you know, uh believe they're going to find like believe they're going to find dinosaur bones or something like that like life right yeah yeah um i mean and eileen so eileen herself is a i'm sorry i didn't get to reread this story so i've only read it once but eileen herself is a, is a scientist of she's, some a seismologist. Kind. she's a seismologist and she so like the, she's really never been like out and about in mars so this is I kind of like not, her yeah. making herself do this thing that she thinks yeah she should do yeah right? on, on yeah she has taken at least a course in areology but she's primarily a, a seismo- seismologist seismologist on 41 they talked with the enthusiasm and free subject free speculation that only amateurs seemed to bring to a subject sunday paper areologists eileen thought um, there wasn't a proper scientist among them she was the closest thing to it and the only thing she knew was the rudiments of areology yet she listened to the talk with interest um so I mean, this is an interesting. There's an interesting idea here about um, things have come far enough on Mars that you can be a fourth generation Martian, and yet have no experience of unterraformed right. Mars. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's basically what who Eileen is. Mm-hmm. She is like a city person, city girl, right? Yeah. Um, she's not you know that all of the stuff that actually to us seems kind of familiar because we've been reading the mars trilogy Mm -hmm. and thinking about the landscape is to her you know the native of the place Mm -hmm. radical unfamiliar and uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and also has this kind of insider-ish quality to it that she feels outside of yeah 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 i really that was the thing that really struck me about the story that i really loved just like that's like such a like subtle kind of like change you mm-hmm. know oh mars so mars has changed enormously if you actually don't ever have to know anything yeah. about you know yeah this version of mars yeah. the canyons you can the live, rocks yeah right? you can live entirely in a city and um find it really uncomfortable to go camping basically yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like why is this so hard like we're pushing this wagon up a up an embankment or whatever and they they at the end of the, every day that's right they have to get out of their suits and they just pour sweat and urine out of it <laughs> into the like the water purifiers or whatever it's, it's um, pretty cool but it is it and it's um on 39 there's a great sort of meditation about the sublime um and the kind of you know this is all being as uh, experienced as an aesthetic experience right even though it's uh, camping and it and it does get very real because they they enter a sandstorm. Um, it's a tourist experience, so therefore it is an aesthetic experience. And uh, and she learn basically like learns through direct experience kind of what um, the sublime actually meant, right? Um, so after complaining that Roger was taking them too far afield to to pick this campsite, she then says Roger did know how to pick a campsite. Eileen admitted to herself. Um, it was truly it was truly a sublime sight as all of their campsite prospects had been sublime to have your senses telling you you are in danger when you know you are not that was burke's definition of the sublime more or less and it fit practically every moment of these days from dawn to dusk um, but that in itself could get wearing. The sublime is not the beautiful after all, and one cannot live comfortably in a perpetual sense of danger. 
<laughs> tell that to us today, <laughs> right now, under Donald Trump. But at sunset, in the tent, in the tent, it was an apprehension that could be enjoyed. The monstrous bare landscape, her bare skin, the utter serenity of the slow movement of Beethoven's last string quartet, which Ivan played every day during the sun's dying moments. And then they read a, a poem from Wang Wei, If Wang Wei Lived on Mars, which uh, is, you know, at the end, there's a bunch of those bunch poems. Of poems. Mm -hmm. Publishes a small chapbook of If Wang Wei Lived on Mars. Um. Yeah, that the sort of so that um so I guess that 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 sort of sense of her her own feeling of being uh alienated both Martian and alienated from Mars um we get this initial sort of dealing with it by thinking about the sublime. Well, okay, so that's a relation you can have toward something that feels extraordinarily alien to you is that you can take that sort of felt relation of fear mm -hmm. and your own diminishment um, and you can turn it into something that becomes aesthetic, right? right? Um, so that you can imagine anchoring an entire aesthetic practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's like a way of like humanizing what can't be, humanizing the non-human scale right. or whatever. Right. Um, and then as the chapter goes on and they find the fossils that they're certain that there's, they're all certain in their amateur, mm -hmm. their Sunday paper amateurism way that they've finally found evidence of life on Mars. Um, and you know, this, the story lets you like maybe think that this might be true, even mm -hmm. though like, probably you should know perfectly well that this is not going to be true right. and then on um uh when they you know when they learn that indeed these are not fossils yes <laughs> um, uh on 60 uh what it, i should i just say it, oh, yeah. it comes after this really great scene of this um sandstorm oh which, that terrifying. roger roger you know masterfully navigates them through um which really you know impresses eileen and then you know she she starts to dig him yeah <laughs> but uh but but that whole scene is really uh amazing yeah. really well written and really like true to life if you've ever been like on a, some kind of adventure hiking trail and someone gets lost or there's a storm yeah and, yeah like, it's really i mean it's actually quite scary yeah. right and then and then that's not scary in the way of the sublime right, right. that's just that's like scary literally in the way scary. of like oh wow somebody's about to die yeah because we're in a situation in which someone could die yeah it goes right? from the sublime to the like terrifying yeah yeah anyway yeah. so well and then on 60 so after 60. they've uh uh after somebody has explained that uh that they have not in fact found fossils eileen thinks uh she wanted life out there as badly as john or mm -hmm. ivan or any of the rest of them did she realized all those books she read when studying literature that was why she would not let herself remember that igneous rock would never be involved with fossilization, because of course she had known right. perfectly well all along. Um, if only life had once existed here, snails, lichen, bacteria, anything, it would somehow take away some of this landscape's awful barrenness. And if Mars itself could not provide, it became necessary to supply it, to do whatever was necessary to make life possible on its desolate surface, to transform it as soon as possible, to give it life. Now she understood the connection between the two main topics right. of evening conversation, their isolated camps, terraforming and the discovery of extinct Martian life forms, and the conversations that took place all over the planet, 
Less intently than out here in the canyons, perhaps, but still, all her life, Eileen had been hoping for this discovery, had believed in it, mm -hmm. believed in it in advance, and we get some thinking about, like, science fiction stories about life on Mars, um, and then on 61, all so many dreams. Mars was a dead planet. Eileen scuffed the freeze-dried dirt and watched through damp eyes as the pinkish sand lofted away from her boot, all dead. That was her home, dead Mars. Not even dead, which implied a life and a dying, just nothing, a red void. Um, I mean, this takes us back to our many discussions about Anne and Anne's love of rocks, which mm -hmm. is a, a loving something that's not alive or dead mm -hmm. and not requiring something to have been alive for, or to be alive or to have been alive or to show signs of life for it to matter. Right. Um, but also this kind of idea that this might sort of, you know, I feel like... Um, we think like stories about life on Mars, wouldn't those stories have to end once there actually was life on Mars? Right, but here, yeah, you right. know, it's like, well, no, actually those are like, those are doing a kind of work to say something um, about the planet for people who come from a planet that is full of life, right? right? And that that attachment to the idea of your surroundings, your environment um, as as itself living is something that matters. I mean, even for Eileen, born, yeah. born on Mars, right. of people born on Mars, yeah. right? It feels, I wonder if it has to do with a kind of like um, primary narcissism or something, like trying to find yourself in others where you don't exist, you know, like projection basically, right? Like it, this is the norm, so therefore it must be normal somewhere else. Like it, it, it must be the case that, not on this uh, life-filled world, uh, but on other worlds, there must also be life there. It just has to be because, you know, you just assume a kind of sameness narcissistically. Yeah, right. And then when you're confronted with the profound difference of otherness, like true otherness, um, you have to invent things like the sublime or myths or whatever to account for that, like that gap between the similar and the different or something like right, that. Right, right. I mean, I was just thinking about how in um, uh, in Frankenstein, when Victor actually, mm. Victor Frankenstein actually talks to the creature that he's made. I'm sure that I've said this on this podcast Maybe. before. Um, but, you know, they, they meet up on a glacier, um, you know, so on this kind of like, for that book anyway, like this non-living space, right? This space of this expanse of ice. And that's where the creature who he has made live mm -hmm. is basically like, uh, you made me live and then you basically just like ignored me and you've left me alone. <laughs> and uh, all I'm asking for you is to recognize me. And Victor's like, oh yes, yes, I, I do recognize you. And then you know, as soon as he leaves, he's like, whatever. He doesn't end up recognizing the creature in any very Screw full way. Um, but, but, you know, like that's a kind of like, I think when one of the things that is happening in that moment of the novel is actually the novel is thinking about what, about the idea of the sublime um, and it becomes kind of critical about the idea of the sublime, right? Victor is highly susceptible to like the beauty of the glacier and yeah. how it makes him feel small. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, he can have these magnificent reflections um, but then when he's like confronted with something um, that, I mean, actually sort of is terrifying, but also he made it and mm -hmm. that is alive, mm 
he's completely incapable mm -hmm. of, you know, like he's not capable of like having heightened reflections or feeling consoled or even acting like a human being would act toward another, yeah. should act toward another living thing, yeah. right? I mean, so there's a way in which there's a kind of, there's a sense there that like you're, you know, the sublime only goes so far. Right. And at some point, like, you know, shit is just way more complicated yeah. <laughs> than that. Because that thing, because nature doesn't actually stand in opposition to you. Yeah. You're part of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that is like equally terrifying. But anyway, that's, I mean, I really liked that about this. I liked that about this chapter, this idea that there, you would be somehow just like nagged by the desire, even though they've made the whole world be alive. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is alive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, I, I really like this chapter. I, I like how uh, they tease each other and um, how she's like, oh, well, don't you want to, like, be a marineris uh, expert or whatever? Isn't that the big one or whatever? Don't you have to, like, spend a lifetime learning it? And he's like, eh, I, I, I'm pretty good with this one. Yeah. It's, it's okay. <laughs> um, he's like, I've been doing this since I was six. Um, so anyway, I like I like their relationship. It was really fun to... Uh, uh, expose or like um whatever grow the archaea archaea plot how do you pronounce that archaea archaea plot i, I in my mind it's archaea but sure. i'm actually not sure if that's okay let's stick it. with that archaea um but it's archaea archaea plot that's good archaea plot <laughs> this is a kind of uh, a um, it's a little red men it's a little red men it's a little folklore thing um which are always um, super delightful. Um, and here we here we learn that the little red the little red people are actually themselves just interlopers mm -hmm. um, uh, who have then uh, um, well if not enslaved at least made use of the prior the prior right. um, uh, dwellers on Mars the Archaea. Archaea. Now that, now that you've said that, I'm worried about how you say it. Archaea. We'll just keep saying it both ways. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think you're supposed to be, I think it's supposed to be unpronounceable in our language. That's, yes, like, it's, you right. know. Yeah. Um, no human tongue could say that word. <laughs> <laughs> um, despite the blood tide, the little red people discovered early on in their civilization that their ancestors, the Archaea, could be grown and harvested mm. for food, also building material cloth and the like. Invent also building material, cloth and the like. Inventing this form of agriculture or husbandry or industry allowed for a tremendous population explosion as the little red people had just taken a step up the food chain by exploiting the level of life just below theirs. Fine for them, and because they have helped us so much in their subtle way, fine for the humans on Mars as well. But the Archaea considered it barbarous. The little red people interpreted their southern, sullen bovine glares as subservience only. <laughs> but all the while, the Archaea were looking at them thinking, you cannibals, we are going to get you someday. <laughs> that's, uh, that's fantastic. I, that makes me think of that uh, in, um, is it in Genealogy of Morals? Where um, Nietzsche writes about the... Or in uses and abuses of history for life. Anyway, he talks about the. I think it's in genealogy of morals. He talks about sheep. Or he's talking about mm. like sheep and eagles mm -hmm. or whatever, something mm -hmm. like that. And like it's all about like the pla the placidness of the creatures that because they don't live in memory, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, like unlike unlike us, they're not like constantly caught up in like the anxious, you know, 
whatever. Yeah. Um, and the anxious past memory history, like it doesn't weigh down on them. They are kind of unconscious. Right. Of, exactly. Like, and here, you know, and here it's these, uh, right. Single, single celled organisms. Yeah. And it turns out wrong about them too. Right. They're, they're full of risontamon too. Right. right? Yeah. They're just yeah. waiting. Right. waiting. Right. Well, I think if, <laughs> I, I, I was an, you know, again, like the way, the, I think in the subsequent years of this, of these novels, they have come to, um, and, Stan himself has come to uh, work. They've come to be seen much more in in relation to things like global warming and yeah. stuff, uh, which we talked about in the in the interview. Um, but I was I'm kind of I have to like uh, uh, my my mind goes to um, the all the oil that we're burning all the time. Yeah, just like you know just the remains of the dinosaurs that we're like dredging up and burning and the oil itself, these like particulates of like ancient long million millennia dead are like, we're going to get you. Well, and I mean, right. Isn't it also like, you know, and disturb disturbing these re reserves yes. of Archaea, right? Yeah. yeah. Which are exactly. like down there, you know, doing their own version of like making energy or whatever yeah. and then releasing Right, that's that's part of what's happening. It's, right? It so is like, what's happening. So I, or the permafrost, all the yeah, things that are yes, coming exactly. out of the permafrost. All we'll the find a way. We'll find a way. Some of the others replied, "We are thermoproteus. We'll yeah. think of something. We'll <laughs> infiltrate somehow. They've poisoned us. We'll poison them back. Just bide your time and keep in touch. The anaerobic revolt will have its day. That, I mean, and I see, think that's that like, is so fantastic. Yeah. The anaerobic revolt will have its day. Like there are like cycles in the life of the universe. And we just happen to be in an aerobic uh, cycle right now. <laughs> aerobicycle. Yeah. Uh, we're aerobicizing. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Speaking of which, I got to go to my <laughs> class. But um, uh, but yeah. Um, anyway. That's awesome. And it's also just like that sort of, I, I don't know. I, I find this like delightful in multiple ways. But that like play between... Um, uh, I just can't get over like Big Man and Paul Bunyan and the idea of them as just like made up of all of these bacteria uh, and the going down through like the layer through the layers right. um, that there are always more, more and more and more. We're always so sure that like we can like say what, you know, like this is the, this is the perspective that tells us this is the objective perspective. This is the controlling perspective. This is the narrative perspective. And here it's just like, you know, uh, you thought you knew the little red people, but actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's great. That's um, good. It's so good. We have met the little red people, and they are us. They, are, yeah. Well, it sounds like they are. You know, they we. You know, uh, the way the land spoke to us. Um, number one, the great escarpment. Number two, flatness. This is just. This is such a beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful little. Chap I don't even know what and, you call this. And also, well, essay, what's interesting, yeah, it's a little know? essay. And what's interesting, too, you know, you just got to wonder where these came from. Were they left out of the novel or were they written, you know, separately for for this in mind? Um, but this one doesn't have a narrator or it doesn't have a character, right? Yeah, it has an interesting switch. The um, The first part of it, there is no dialogue here. It the, is just an essay. Right, right. The first part of it, the great escarpment, is all this um, addressed to the second person. Mm -hmm. um, so is that, you know, is this somebody speaking or is that just to us, the reader? Is this, you know, 
and I was thinking like, how, how do we put this like, um, sort of temporally next to the story about mm-hmm. like being taken on the, being taken on the, you know, guided hike. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on 74, still at the very end of that first section, uh, if you keep sight of a reference mark, you can see that what down in that last camp. So it's all about like, uh, you know, wind, winding mm-hmm. your way through um, the mazy canyons that you can't see and you have to go up and down and you can't uh, sort of orient yourself to the hole or whatever. Um, uh, if you kept, kept sight of a reference mark, you can see that what was down in the last camp, that what down in the last camp you took for the top of the cliff was only about two-thirds of the way up it. So all this stuff about the horizon, right, and the nearness or farness of the horizon. Um, And the rest was blocked from view. And in any case, the very strong optical effect of foreshortening had deceived you as to the true height of the thing. You keep floating up into the air, up and up, like a bird gyring on an updraft, and finally seeing the cliff all at once from this perspective... We just started to laugh. So we get this, like, sh- suddenly a shift there, right? We just started to laugh. We couldn't help it. We were laughing or crying or both at once. Our mouths were hanging open to our chests. We positively goggled at it, and there was nothing really we could say. It was so big. Yeah. Which is, like, another, you know, it's a different... Here we have, like, a much more sort of, like, stand take on what the sublime mm-hmm, is, right? Mm-hmm. It's your mouth dropping open yeah. in a cartoonish fashion and right. just being like, oh, Ooh, my God, sh- what can you do but laugh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that little... <laughs> I was just, like, I loved how that shift from the second person into the we yes. um, happens there and that that, you know that actually sort of like distances us the reader more because suddenly we're we're not like getting the tour we're hearing about something that happened to somebody else yeah, right potentially right. Yeah. unless we think of ourselves as part of the we um and we have a kind of instance of like one of those like choral voices which we've talked about it happened in some of the prologue sections kind of the little red men are a choral voice um it, it seems to that but it could also be like that thing of when you're you're telling a story of about an experience you had that's you i mean we you know we we use that voice or that um person sometimes to describe so what you do is you go here yeah, and you exactly. go there like and you go there yeah. and what you're describing is it sounds like what you're describing is yeah you're giving directions or you're laying out an experience for the person but what you're actually doing is describing your experience yes, of yes. that place so it's this it is another kind of example of projection or something and there in that moment it breaks down the conceit collapses and you're like so then what we did yeah, yeah. our personal experience of this was just to like laugh and cry yeah, at the same time right. which is what happened when i uh, the first time i was in chicago at, in a winter wind storm <laughs> and the wind just cut right through all my warmest clothes i just started laughing um, because you couldn't do anything uh, other than that um, and then, uh, flatness, which you, uh, I just you, think this is so beautiful. Should we try to read the whole thing? We have, we have time if you wanted to read the whole thing. Should we? Um, otherwise, what's that part about the surreal that I wanted to? It's right at the end of the flatness the, section. Okay. Should we read it? If you want to read it, you want to like trade off a little bit or? Yeah. Do you okay. want to trade paragraphs? I'll go the first two and then you do the longer one. 
Okay. There are places out in our gear that are nothing but flat sand to the horizon in every direction. Usually the sand is blown into dunes. Any kind of dune from very fine ripples underfoot to truly gargantuan barkin dunes. But in Barchan dunes? I know we talked about this when we learned that word. <laughs> but in some areas, even that is missing, and it is simply a flat plain of sand or bedrock with the sky arching over it. They say that if you look at it closely, the sky forms the visual equivalent of a dome overhead. Not a true hemisphere, but flattened somewhat. This is a virtually universal human perception, the result of consistent overestimation of horizontal distance compared with vertical distance. On Earth, the horizon seems to be two to four times farther off than the zenith overhead. And if you ask someone to divide the arc between the zenith and the horizon evenly, the point chosen averages well less than 45 degrees, about 22 degrees by day, I have found, 30 by night. Redness increases this effect. If you look at the sky through a red glass, it appears flatter, through a blue glass, taller. On Mars, the unobstructed horizon is only about half as far away as it is on Earth, about five kilometers. And sometimes this simply makes the zenith seem even lower, perhaps two kilometers high. It depends on the clarity of the air, which of course varies a great deal. Sometimes I have, I have seen the dome of the sky appear 10 kilometers high or even transparent to infinity, mostly lower than that. In fact, the vault of the sky is a different shape every day if you will take the time to look at it carefully. But no matter the transparency of the sky or the shape of the dome it makes overhead, the sand is always the same. Flat, reddish-brown, redder out toward the horizon. The, char the characteristic redness occurs if even 1% of the bedrock or the dust on the ground is made up of iron oxide, such as magnetite. This, con this condition obtains everywhere on Mars, except for the lava plains of Sirtis, which, when blown free of dust, are nearly black, one of my favorite places. Also, the first feature to be seen from Earth through telescopes by Christian Huygens in 1654. In any case, a perfect red plane in all directions to the round horizon. Inside certain flat craters, you stand at the center and see a double horizon. In fact, a double horizon, in fact. The lower one five kilometers away and perfectly straight, the higher one farther away and usually less straight, even serrated. This second horizon also considerably flattens the dome of the sky. But the completely flat areas are the purest view. Much of Vastitis Borealis is so flat that only millions of years of existence as the floor of an ocean can explain it. And parts of Argyre planet Planitia are equally flat. We cannot lose these places. In these regions, one stands confronted by a radically simplified landscape. It is a surreal experience to look around oneself surreal in the literal sense of the word, in that one seems to stand in a place over real or more than real, a higher state than reality, or reality revealed in its barest, most heraldic simplicity. The world says then, this is what the cosmos consists of, rock, sky, sun, life, that's you. What a massive aesthetic impact is conveyed by this so simplified landscape. It forces you to pay attention to it, it is so remarkable you keep looking at it. You cannot do or think anything else as if living in a perpetual total eclipse or within any other physical miracle, which of course is always the case, remember. So good. And like, really like that passage just, it, 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 you know, I'm tempted to go back to the trilogy and find um, 
other landscape mm. descriptions because what's going on there is so interesting it's not what we expect maybe from science fiction it's much more literary mm. and um like landscape um landscape prose i guess whatever um but also wrapped up in a meditation on life itself subjectivity perception um all these things which once you say all that it, it does bring you back to science fiction yes yes exactly <laughs> it right you I mean, right back to what science fiction is all about right because it's i mean it is literally about like i mean it, it's literally <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's, I mean, it's about, a, it's about estrangement, yeah. you know, mm. I mean, and that if like, if what science fictional estrangement is supposed to do is to, um, as, as you figure out the differences in the world you're reading about, you are in the same move left estranged from the naturalness of what surrounds you. Like that's precisely what's happening here too, yeah. because you're being asked to do this very complicated, like oscillating move between whatever account this account that you're getting mm -hmm. apparently authoritative mm -hmm. of how we imagine the relationship between the horizon and the dome of the sky mm -hmm. to an account of the relationship between the horizon and sky on Mars mm -hmm. right so something that we don't think about in our own daily lives because we live in that constant misperception of what the relation between those two is right. do a description of a version of a relation between horizon and sky that we're able to imagine but that we haven't experienced because mm. it's because it's based on a planet that's a radically different size from our planet back to thinking about our own what we don't see and then those last moments we're both on mars and also thinking just about like the miraculousness yeah. of our presence right the here. few kilometers of life encrusted on this dead rock right um but also like i would say you know that that kind of experience of the difference between the horizon like the horizon the relationship of the horizon and the dome of the sky um that it you can estrange that by going to different places in the world oh right? sure yeah you know yeah. so like my experience of the sky in chicago is way different than my experience of the sky in los angeles just because we don't have in la in la there just aren't the kinds of cloud formations that you get in the midwest and this is one of the things i love about the midwest or anywhere that's not southern california is that there are actually like these towering huge tall you know um clouds in the sky that really like you know baffle the mind of a you know kid from orange county i was just when i was uh after i graduated from college a friend of mine and i went out to the west coast and we went to live in portland mm -hmm. um and as we were driving through montana we were like driving a like 1984 honda civic that uh -huh. broke down at some point in the rocky mountains uh -huh. i mean there's a lot of things about that trip <laughs> that when i think about it now feel strange um but anyway at some point we were in montana and we were like stopped don't remember where we were and we were looking up at the sky and one of the other of us was like well i guess i see why they call it big sky country and then we just both were hysterically yeah, yeah, laughing yeah but it was true it yeah felt like oh my god yeah, yeah. the sky's really big here <laughs> really big i mean yeah you sound you hear that phrase big sky country and you're like that's stupid like uh, this obviously the sky is big and then you go to big sky country and you're like holy wow. shit yes, exactly i have all of these like i still so in some box of photos have all these snapshots yeah. i took from montana which are just pictures of the sky yeah 
And they still, when I look at them, I'm like, oh, yeah, Montana. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I know, probably that would not register on another viewer. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, totally. yeah. Um, cool. These are fun. And like these four, mm. I think, are a really great snapshot of the types of stories and essays and pieces that are going to kind of go through, based on just the titles alone, um, that are going to kind of run through the whole collection. And so I think that um, for people who are reading along, Mm -hmm. as everybody is, um, how far do you think we should try for for the next time? What's the next? We've got Mayan Desmond, uh, which is followed, I think, by four teleological trails. Four teleological trails, which seems, that's only 10 pages. That's short. Discovering Life is is also short. So should we try to do... I mean, in truth, we won't get through... More than that, right? Let's just do those four. Wait, wasn't um, that three? Mayan Desmond, Four Teleological Trails, and Discovering Life. Okay, yeah, let's do those three. And then maybe maybe what would be a good idea, thinking about the timeline and when I'm about to leave, we could, one of us could do a solo episode on Coyote makes trouble and one of us could do a solo episode on Michelle in Provence Mm. and then we could um, by then I'll have moved and hopefully set up internet and stuff and we could do the green Mars remotely that now you're yeah, yeah. now you're getting okay. into yeah, yeah how the sausage yeah, I was gets just made. About, I was just about to say we've been some spending, fascinating details that our audience will be excited. I mean, to we, know. I got this out, but I think they would love to hear. Oh yeah, uh, exactly. Our it's behind, the, behind the scenes, it's I mean, we could act, yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about more about it later. <laughs> uh, uh, we'll fi- we'll figure it out. But I mean, I guess if you just read keep, the next three, if you just keep reading, you're not going to be disappointed. <laughs> no way <laughs> will you be disappointed in this podcast. Uh, I, I mean, can't maybe, imagine it. I mean, maybe they'll be disappointed in the podcast, but they're not going to be disappointed in the book no no right for sure so that's our we can't control that's our ace in the hole look be disappointed in whatever you want you know be free be you be you um that's that's beautiful thank you speaking of podcasts we should plug our friends hey our friends have a new podcast called better red than dead red is spelled like read like r-e-a-d better read than deed yeah no red better Better read red than than dead and it's Literature from a leftist perspective, right? Yeah, and I did notice uh, uh, in the uh, i on the iTunes store that there is another podcast I think called that. Right. So don't be fooled. You want the one that's clearly made by people who care about socialism because the logo <laughs> is red. Red, and also I think the other one they haven't even updated it in like a long time or something like that. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. It's anyway. Hosted by our friends. Our who are friends very who are really smart, smart and cool. Apparently funny too. And- <laughs> I haven't. Um, uh, also, they have they have like a social media presence. Yeah, yeah. On Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, and all, they have and a look. They probably have a look. They're also. I think they're, it's also available on. The they're Anch- smart and they're more organized than we are. They are because there's three of them, so they're um, half again as organized. It's because there are three of them. It is. Yeah, and um, they you can listen to it on iTunes, but also like Spotify mm-hmm. and Anchor. The our. Uh, hosting platform, the Anchor FM. Oh, that's right. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so ba- basically, I think they're just like sitting around talking about it's one uh, novel works works per, of literature. Yeah. one no- novel per episode. Right. So I think the first one is Frankenstein, and the second one is Dracula. I believe they're they're doing Frankenstein and Dracula first. Creature double feature. Uh, and uh, as everybody knows, Frankenstein, the greatest novel of the nineteenth century. Right. <laughs> Dracula 
one of the most secretly weird and hilarious novels it's of the 19th century. really weird and interesting. Yeah. Um, so uh, check that out, but don't let that interfere with you listening with to With the this most important podcast. thing that you do in your life, which yeah. is read uh, Kim Stanley Robinson <laughs> and listen to our podcast. <laughs> Uh, you, yeah, email us, tweet at us, uh, uh, rank and review, rate and review <laughs> us on iTunes and Spotify and wherever and uh, tell your friends and um, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.